Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Psalm 123. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. This is the word of the Lord. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you. We ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word that you would help our minds and our hearts to be focused, that your spirit would be at work, convicting us of sin, building us up by your grace. Father, I pray that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to say that the Saundersons walked in a little bit late in the back of the church, and there they are, and it's so sweet to see you this morning. And Rachel, you are large with child, and that is a happy thing too. Praise God. It's good to see you. Psalm 123, let's give our attention now to, to God's Word. This psalm that I'm preaching this morning is one of 15 songs of ascents, they're called. The Psalms run from Psalm 120 up to Psalm 134. Uh, Why are they labeled a a song of ascents? Well, some say it's because there were 15 steps that went from the court of the women to the uh, court of the Israelites in the temple. So perhaps in some sort of procession up those steps, ascending those steps, the Levites would sing these 15 psalms. Uh, Historians aren't so sure about that. Others say that they were sung as the people of Israel made their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, hence ascent, because Jerusalem was set on a a hill. Um, Particularly as the, the ark returned to Zion and the people returned from exile, or, the, or at another time when the men were called to come to Jerusalem at the three uh, yearly feasts that, that were required of the men to worship there. Well, we don't know. We don't know um, if that's correct or not. Uh, Matthew Henry puts forward an idea from scholars around his time that these were not songs of ascents, but songs of degree. In other words, they were marked out as being of excellent quality. Uh, You know, like with many of the labels and points of information at the beginning of the Psalms, we really can't be sure why these are Psalms of Ascents. What we can be sure of, though, is that these Psalms were inspired by God and therefore are profitable for 
our meditation, for our memorization, for our singing, regardless of whether we're engaged in some sort of ritual stair climbing or procession to the temple in Jerusalem. Both of those actions are obsolete anyway with, with the destruction of the temple and more importantly, the rending of the veil of the temple in tune at the death, the temple, the rending of the veil of the temple in two at the death of Jesus. So our worship is performed by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit from wherever we may be, right? The body of Christ covers the, the earth as the waters cover the sea. So Psalm 123, the psalm begins with the description of a man lifting up his eyes to God. Very simple action, a very simple description. In fact, the first three verses all have to do with this object of the gaze of certain people's eyes. What we focus our eyes on, generally speaking, is that which has our attention. And more than just attention, many times what we fix our eyes on has has our heart. It has our affection. Spurgeon says, it is good to have someone to look up to. It's good to have someone to look up to. The man or woman or child who has nothing or nobody to look up to generally has his eyes fixed on um, on what? Either himself in a mirror like a narcissist or like Narcissus, right? Or on the ground, away from anything or anybody else, right? If our eyes are not lifted up, they're either on ourselves or on the ground. Without God as the object of our gaze, we become narcissists or materialists. Only that which we can see with our physical eyes is worth our devotion. But we have eyes of faith, right? Scripture describes that we have eyes of faith. And so, we have our eyes fixed upon God Almighty, who is in the heaven. We, we have a heavenly object to our devotion, not, not the sinful self, not the created ground, not the created world, but the Creator Himself. It is to the Creator in heaven that we focus our gaze. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens." That's the first point. There are so many applications we could make just upon this. It, it, it is important for us to realize that it is only those who have been given eyes to see that can lift up their eyes to heaven and see God. But since we are taught by Scripture that the heart of man is an, is an idol factory, that those who have their eyes fixated on the ground, on the earth, on the creation, will actually deify what they look at. They will deify what they gaze at. Do we see this contrast today? Of course we see this. The people of our nation are in an uproar because they can't see past melanin in the skin. And so melanin becomes the arbiter of value. If we lift up our eyes to God, we see that regardless of ethnicity and melanin, we have been created in his image, right? The dignity of man is much deeper. It's much more broad, much more valuable than what those who have their eyes fixed downward would have us believe. 
those who have their, their gaze fixed on the trees of the forest and the birds who nest in those trees can deify that object and amplify their importance much beyond the importance of man, the image bearer, for example. Right? Listen to this start, the, the start of this article from The Atlantic uh, from 2012. It's entitled, The Radicals, How Extreme Environmentalists Are Made. And it speaks of what I'm saying. If we do not fix our eyes upon God, what we fix our eyes upon will become our God. It is inevitable that that's what man does. Man is a worshiping creature. And so what has his attention becomes his God. So here's this uh, story of this young man from the Atlantic. Sitting in the woods one day at the age of 15, Christopher Irwin wasn't thinking about the environment. He was thinking about suicide. For a meticulous teenager with an inclination toward precise planning, the logistics weren't a problem. Nearly everyone he knew in his hometown of Charleston, West Virginia, owned a gun. If that weren't enough, his house was filled with an abundance of prescription pain medications. The pills belonged to his stepfather, who was losing a fight with prostate cancer. Irwin's mother had decided she would home care her husband, and for two years she served as his nurse. With his condition deteriorating and his pain escalating, medications littered their home. He begged my mother to overdose him, Irwin recalls. Irwin's bedroom shared a wall with his parents, and he could hear their arguments the constant, desperate pleas of a man dying in severe pain. Irwin did the only thing he could, escape. On weekdays, the boy would grab two slices of toast and down a glass of tang. Once out the door, he did his best to avoid returning. I lived in the library, and when Friday came, I'd grab my backpack and head for the woods. It was one of this, his weekend getaways that Irwin found himself sitting in a clearing contemplating suicide. It was difficult to stop thinking about his stepfather. The doctors believed the cancer was the result of his years spent working as a chemical engineer for Union Carbide. Irwin wasn't a doctor, but he knew that when his stepfather came home from work, he'd immediately jump in the shower to get the thick layer of chemicals off his skin. And now when he thought of the cries of pain waiting for him at home, suicide seemed like a good option. I heard the trees rustling, and I decided to kill myself. I knew where I was going to go and what I was going to do. But something made Irwin pause. If I'm going to end it, I might as well do something with my life. He told himself that something became obvious once he looked around him. I decided that, yeah, I liked these trees, and that there were some people who were trying to Screw with them. So that instead of suicide, I could try fighting those people. Instead of turning to suicide, I turned to protest. Irwin's brother Brian recalls seeing a change in Irwin after that. He was much more reflective, somewhat stormy. He definitely turned inward. I guess he confronted his demons. Now, 30 years later, that same conviction is on display in Irwin every Tuesday night when he joins a group of like-minded activists at Barley's Tap Room in the Old Town section of Knoxville, Tennessee. They all believe in some form of radical environmentalism. 
Most don't have life and death stories of conversion, but many can point to a moment, a wilderness experience, as they call it, that convinced them to commit their lives to protecting the environment. These epiphanies are often reminiscent of spiritual awakenings. According to Dr. Harold Herzog, a psychology professor at Western Carolina University who specializes in moral decision-making and affinity with the outdoors. The similarities between, listen to this, activists' moments of commitment and religious conversion is astounding, Herzog observes. Then there is the evangelism side trying to convert others. Right, so this young man fixed his eyes on those trees and those leaves and the rustling of the leaves, which we've done many times. But his gaze stopped there. Right, did not go beyond to the creator of those trees, did not go beyond to, to the one above those trees. And, and that, so that young man fixed his eyes upon trees and of trees made a God. He did not take his gaze high enough he did not take his gaze to the creator of the trees. To do so would have been proper perspective. It would have led not to deifying of forests, but to a love for forests because they reflect the glory of God. True environmentalism, right? That's what it would have led to. So again, I say what we, what we gaze upon, what we fix our eyes upon, what we give our attention to will be what we worship. The only way for this not to be blasphemous idolatry is to put our gaze upon the one true living God. The psalm goes on, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to our Lord God until he is gracious to us. So these two images are given to us as examples, the look of a servant to the hand of his master and the look of a maid to the hand of her mistress. And these are meant to make us contemplate this, the readiness of the servant and maid to respond to the tiniest gesture of their superior. They look to the hand of their master to see if he's commending them to some work. They pay, pay attention to the master. And even with the smallest gesture of their hands, they are ready to act. They're ready to obey. Spurgeon, um, in his sermon or his, his commentary on this, reflects on this and says, Just so, the sanctified person lifts his eyes unto God and endeavors to learn the divine will from every one of the signs which the Lord is pleased to use. Creation, providence, grace. These are all motions of Jehovah's hand, and from each of them, a portion of our duty is to be learned. Therefore, should we carefully study them to discover the divine will? And so those whose gaze is, is focused elsewhere will, will not see and learn. They will be taking their cues from the shape of their body as they see it in the mirror or the bark of the tree as they deify its quiet and simple life. But you... Your eyes, being fixed on God, that will allow you to witness the slightest motion of his hand. 
You will receive as discipline those subtle providences that come by the littlest of God's effort. I remember hearing uh, the story of a man who was, who was checking out a pretty lady in a parking lot as he drove to find a parking spot. As he was fixing his eyes on her, immediately he plowed into a car in front of him. He took it as God's discipline of him. And the reason he did so is he properly had eyes fixed upon God. And when God slightly raised his finger to put that car in his path, he noticed. How many thousands of examples could we all give of this? Some discipline, some merciful, some mercies. When, when um, Sarah Ribbons, my wife's maiden name, when she came to a church at Church of the Good Shepherd in Bloomington, Indiana the first time, George Harris invited her over for lunch. First Sunday. Had he not, Sarah and I both say, we would not have been married. Sarah would have gone a different route. But that invitation and that hospitality was the raising of God's finger. And we both, in hindsight, notice it. But we wouldn't if our eyes were not fixed on God. Looking for God's motions. Looking for His providence. And now verse 2 ends with this statement. So our eyes look to Yahweh our God until He is gracious to us. Now don't read the... Don't read the sentence the wrong way. It is not meant to be like a little child throwing a tantrum. I'm not going to stop crying until you buy me a candy bar sort of statement. It's not that. That that is born of impatience, but this statement is born of a patient heart. We know God is a covenant-keeping God and that everything he promises will he will unfailingly accomplish. But we may at times have to wait for it. To wait. There will be seasons we go through when it seems the persecution will not abate. Although none of us have really experienced that. But in his due time, God will bring it to an end. There will be seasons we go through when it seems we are going from one sickness to another. But God will bring it to an end in his time. Right? There will be seasons we go through when it seems that every day is very long and filled with some uh, just, just mundane task after mundane task, same as the previous 75 days, but God will bring it to an end in his time. The key is to continue to fix your gaze upon God as you wait, rather than renouncing him and trusting in something that is, is immediate, Right? Or, and, and by being immediate and by not being God is, is much less powerful. But it's immediate. We look to God not only because He is more glorious than anything else upon which we could set our gaze, but because we are needy servants. We are pathetic, needy, needy people who need His help. We need His grace. Psalm goes on, be gracious to us, O Yahweh, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. 
Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Kidner, in reflecting on these verses, says, it is illuminating that contempt is singled out for mention. Other things can bruise, but this contempt is cold steel. It goes deeper into the spirit than any other form of rejection. In the Sermon on the Mount, it ranks as more murderous than anger. Contempt is very difficult to bear because it's It is not just disappointment at our failures. Contempt is to deem a person worthless and deserving of hatred. That's what contempt is. It is to say that that person is deserving of hatred and it is righteous of me. It is only good of me to hate what is so despicable. That's contempt. Christians have found themselves being the objects of contempt throughout their history. Right? Contempt towards others is what arises when we think our enemies are worthless. Contempt is what the Japanese felt toward American prisoners during World War II. Contempt is what Nazis felt toward Jews during the same war. Right? And, and if contempt is animating your actions, you are compelled to treat others for whatever reason you have deemed non-negotiable as less than human. Less than human. Today in our country, we see police officers are viewed as contemptible. That's the contemporary narrative. For about an hour, I watched the live feed of some Black Lives Matter protesters in Washington, D.C. A line of police officers had formed. Opposite them was a line of of, um, BLM protesters. And these police officers had contempt hurled at them with the grossest of language. Those officers were ridiculed and provoked. An Asian female officer that I was watching endured a quarter of an hour with a black protester inches from her face, casting insult after insult, degrading insult after degrading insult at her. You could tell it was getting to her, that Asian police officer, because the corners of her mouth were starting to quiver. And her eyes were filling with tears. Monuments to fallible men, whoever made the claim that anybody was perfect, have been covered with expressions of contempt. Right? And as we have learned over the past 60 or 70 years, Scripture's views on sexuality, on father rule, on money, on the environment, are held in contempt by our decadent society. And so Christians generally are held in contempt. Christians have always been held in contempt. During the patriot days of the American Revolution, Christians were held in contempt. During the French Revolution, Christians were held in contempt. During first century Rome, Christians were held in contempt. Right? During the Reformation, Christians were held in contempt and killed. Right? There is never been, during Jesus' days, Christians were held in contempt and killed. How many of the apostles met their end through martyrdom? Right? Christians have always been held in contempt. Christians are called to suffer contempt. Why would we think we are above our master, Jesus Christ, who suffered contempt? 
the insults of those who crucified him. That is going to be our lot in life, no matter what constitution we have, to suffer as Christians. I think in the coming decade, this prayer in Psalm 123 will become a frequent prayer of, of, of American Christians. Be gracious to us, O Yahweh. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Spurgeon says something that I think is worth contemplating. When our companions, and I would add our countrymen, make little of us, we are far too apt to make little of ourselves and of the consolations prepared for us. So when we're belittled, we begin to believe what people are saying about us. Right? That happens everywhere. That happens in your workplace. That can happen in marriages. Right? That can happen in your relationship with your siblings. That can happen in the church. That can happen everywhere. When our companions make little of us, we are far too apt to make little of ourselves and of the consolations prepared for us. In other words, when we are the object of continual vehement disdain or contempt, we have a tendency to begin to believe what is said about us. And that is one of the reasons those who are filled with contempt for others will continue to cast their insults and breathe their threats. It's effective. They know what they are doing will weaken their opponent. They work to dehumanize others. Hence, you see them give, give themselves to actions that no true Christian should rightly ever give himself to. They demonize by verbal abuse. They demonize by physical abuse. They demonize by refusing to make eye contact. The history of mankind is marked by this kind of dehumanization. But it is something that Christians who believe the Bible, something they should never be part of. Why? Because if man is created in God's image, the dignity of man as the image bearer must always be maintained. Always maintained. Right? Chattel slavery happened because blacks were dehumanized. Africans selling Africans happened because they were human, dehumanized. African, I mean, Muslims invading Europe and enslaving white Christians happened because those Christians were dehumanized. Stalin's Soviet labor camps, right, where Solzhenitsyn suffered for eight years, happened because certain Soviets were dehumanized. Mao, Mao Zedong, right, the great, great leap forward was because certain of the poor were dehumanized. On and on and on and on and on the list goes. On and on and on and on and on. The violence and contempt of man knows no limits. Remember what, remember this. Remember that God flooded the earth because it was filled with violence. And it hasn't been flooded again because God keeps his promises. Not because the violence has subsided. So what's my point in all this? What's, what's my point? My point is that we must be prepared in our nation to live as dehumanized and contemptible people. We have to be prepared to live as dehumanized and contemptible people. 
It will lead to suffering. It may lead to revolution, but in none of it may we regard others as less than image bearers of God. That means that when Christians fight, they do not fight as Hitler fought or as Mao fought or as Stalin fought. We may never dehumanize others and for that reason eradicate them. Never. Never. That means we as Christians will always fight on an uneven playing field. Because there are certain things that pagans will give themselves to that Christians never will. Lying, rioting, cheating, murdering, dehumanizing. Christians won't do those things if they fear God, the one who can cast both body and soul in hell. And the, and, and the example of Jesus Christ in the face of his accusers, we have to remember when suffering, he prayed for his enemies who were casting insults at him. When others were clamoring for the kingdom, kingdoms of this world, he reminded them that his kingdom was not of this world. When insulted, he turned the other cheek. When insulted, he was silent. He was silent. And we're told to wear face masks, and we go crazy. It's pathetic. Jesus has taught us this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, be like God because he loves the wicked and the good. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And on the cross, as Jesus suffers unjustly, suffers unjustly, perhaps the only perfectly unjust suffering ever. By the hands of men, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That is, at the very least, to avoid dehumanizing those who were murdering him. They were doing their best to denigrate and throw contempt at Jesus, and he still dignifies them with by asking God to forgive them. It's mind-boggling faith, that is. It's so hard to conceive of being in the same position and having the same heart. The only way we will be successful in following the commands and example of Jesus Christ in the race of the oncoming contempt will be, uh, 
we will bear just for being Christians is to remember that it is God, it is God, it is only God, it is God himself who will vindicate his people when all men stand before him at his judgment day. God gets to vindicate. God gets to judge. How can we bear with contempt? We bear with contempt knowing that all men will stand before God at the final judgment. How can we wait and not take vengeance into our own hands? Right? We rest and wait knowing that though our souls are greatly filled with the scoffing of the decadent and the contempt of the proud, all men will be judged impartially at the last day. And what will, they, what will they be judged upon? Their works, which will be horrible. We must, as Spurgeon puts it, bear our share of this evil which still rages and let us firmly believe that the contempt of the godly will turn toward honor in the world to come. Even now, he says, it serves as a certificate that we are not of this world. When we bear contempt, it's like confirmation. We're not of this world. We are those who have fallen short of the glory of God, are absolutely dependent upon the grace of God. For it we wait, for it we endure, for it we work, for the good of our enemies, for it we patiently suffer, for it we bear every kind of contempt. Because we have the grace of God. Calvin writes, The godly finding themselves utterly broken in spirit and cast down, intently directed their eyes to the hand of God. Now he adds that they were filled with reproach. From this we learn that the wicked not only assaulted them by such ways of violence as suggested themselves to their minds, but that by their mockery they as it were trampled underfoot the children of God. He goes on, he says, It commonly happens that those who are elevated in the world look down with contempt upon the people of God. The luster of their power dazzles their eyes so that they make no account of God's spiritual kingdom. Yea, the more the wicked prosper and are smiled on by fortune, to the greater extent does their pride swell and the more violently does it throw off its form. This passage teaches us that it is no new thing for the church to be held in contempt by the children of this world who abound in riches. We see that in old time the church of God was covered with reproaches and pointed at the finger of scorn and pointed at with this finger of scorn. We ought not to be discouraged if the world despises us, nor should we allow our faith to be shaken by the wicked when they assault us with their scoffs. Yea, even defame us with their injurious and insulting language, we must always bear in mind what is here recorded, that the heart not of one man only or of a few, but of the whole church was filled not merely with the violence, cruelty, craft, and other evil doings of the wicked, but also with the reproaches and mockery. It is to be remembered that all the loftiness and pride existing in the world are here represented as in opposition to the church, so that she is accounted as nothing better than the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things, as the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 4. 
When the same thing happens to us at the present day, this is still Kelvin, when the same thing happens to us at the present day, what do you think he says? <laughs> this is a monologue, I'm sorry. I'm asking questions, it's a monologue. I'll go back to the monologue. When the same thing happens to us at the present day, let us leave the wicked to swell with their pride until they burst. And let it suffice us to know that we are notwithstanding precious in the sight of God. Let their pride puff up. Remember that we're precious in the sight of God. What then remains to be done, but that finding ourselves environed with darkness on all sides, we seek the light of life in heaven. And that our soul, although it may be filled to satiety with all kinds of reproaches, breathe forth prayers to God for deliverance with the importunity of the famished. In other words, he says, you're going to be surrounded with darkness all your days. Your hope is in heaven. Now get mad at me for spiritualizing. Heaven. The throne room of God. The presence of God. Seated in the new Jerusalem with God descending out of heaven where we will forever be with the Lord. Give me heaven or I die. That's what Christians say. Give me heaven or give me death. Give me heaven. Heaven. Right, so, so God has promised suffering to the church. God has promised that we will not go in a different way than Jesus went. And so our only hope is in heaven. Our only hope is in that which comes next. It is undoubtedly true that on the great day of the Lord, when you are welcomed into the marriage supper of the Lamb, listen to this, when you are welcomed into the marriage supper of the Lamb, you will not be disappointed that your opportunities to pour contempt on your enemies came to an end. Or maybe some of you will. I, I enjoyed insulting those who didn't know God, whose eyes were blind. I enjoyed being opposed to everyone and everything. So maybe you will get to the, the marriage supper of the Lamb when, when it's a feast and everything's at peace and, and you'll be disappointed that you have to give up your contempt. You will instead see with your own eyes <clears throat> As you look upon the Lord, this scene from, from Daniel, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting what? Contempt. God's contempt will rest on those who don't know him. God's contempt. And it's not just contempt, it's everlasting contempt. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The contempt of man is a drop in the bucket of the contempt of the everlasting God. Oh, we will suffer under the contempt of the decadent and the proud, but don't be short-sighted. If you take your gaze off God Almighty, you will cave under the contempt and 
You will worship their gods if you keep your eye fixed upon our conquering king who has triumphed even over death. You will endure. You will endure. So will you respond to the insults and contempt of the world as Christians who believe that God is enthroned in heaven on high, observing the acts of men? Or will you respond to contempt by taking matters into your own hand, by paying evil for evil, by dehumanizing those who are created in God's image, by doing precisely what pagans intend to do to you? Or will we respond with faith and trust in God, and as Psalm 123 says, Look to Yahweh our God until he is gracious to us. Look to God until he is gracious to us. <clears throat> may it be the latter and may we do all things for his glory, right? And truly live as confident, confident children of the king who have their eyes fixed on him and who are waiting just waiting, even as the suffering comes, waiting. Even as contempt is poured on us, waiting. Even as, as every minute seems like agony, waiting until the resurrection of the dead where God will pour his contempt out with perfect justice and usher in his children into his glorious presence. 